Good evening. If you would, turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, and you might want to have a pen handy because we're going to cover a lot of references or be ready to move tonight. Um, but we'll see how it goes. So Genesis chapter 15. And as you're on your way there, to topic tonight's discussion in our apologetic series is one that uh, hit me out of nowhere, and I'll set the stage for that. Um, we're going to be discussing what about the Canaanite genocide. And of course, I'm using the word genocide anachronistically. Um, it's a word that didn't exist until the 20th century. And with that in mind, we're not just talking about the Canaanites. The other passages in mind there would be what happens to the Midianites in Numbers and also to the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. The 2000s, you know, the double zeros, the aughts, as some people call them, the 2000s were a weird time in America, right? It was the, that was really when cultural Christianity starts just degrading like crazy. Contemporary Christian music had hit its peak in the you know, early 2000s, and it's going away. Culture Christianity starts going away. It starts just eroding really quickly. And what I mean by that is people who were nominally Christian but weren't really actually Christian or just people who attended church because that was regularly what you needed to do, and then that got replaced by doing sports on Sunday. Um, so it was a really weird time in the 2000s, and also in the 2000s, so four certain men rose to, to fame. Um, and they are, they, are also called, they are called the four uh, horsemen of the new atheist movement. And what do I mean by a new atheist? Well, number one, we know atheist means those who don't believe in God. The new atheists were militant atheists. They are, it's not only enough to just say that I don't believe God exists, it's I don't believe that God exists and no one should, and if you do, you're stupid, and we're going to come after you. Um, I always forget the one's name, I know it's David something, but there's Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins famously in his book, The God Delusion, called God, the God of the Bible, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And Christopher Hitchens said of God in the book God is Not Great, he said he is an in, he would order indiscriminate massacre. So we'll talk about that. What, what, what is, like, are these guys right? Well, they're not. But we will discuss that. And in the middle of the 2000s, so you're fast forwarding to like 2009, uh, I, I had, um, I graduated high school in 2009 and I had already been accepted in the Boyce College at Southern Seminary. And I was ready to go learn. Uh, I, I was, I was, you know, I didn't know what God had for, in store for my life as a calling on my life. I thought I was going to be a missionary. I, I just didn't know. But I knew that no matter what, if I go into missions, apologetic, or if I go into missions, being a pastor, whatever God had planned for my life, even if it was to work in the secular field, um, that if I did the apologetics degree, not only would I get all the preaching classes I needed, but I could learn how to defend the faith. And here I am from this, you know, being growing up in Walton. Uh, going to Walton in front of high school. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, I talked to many people who were not believers about the gospel in high school, and no one ever brought this up. So imagine it's like the third week of school, right? My third week of boys, I'm this young pup really in theology. I have no idea what I'm even getting into yet. I have no idea what else in store, how much I'm going to be learning that I don't know. Uh, and then as I keep learning, realizing how much I still don't know. <laughs> but uh, the sim I, I'm out playing Ultimate Frisbee, in the quad there, or the J-Bull as they call it, and the seminarian, like we're taking a break, and the seminarian, he, uh, what's we call the seminary students, he asks me, so uh, what, what are you uh, going to college for? 
And I said, oh, I'm doing the apologetics degree. He goes, oh, that's awesome. Hey, uh, what do you think about the Canaanite genocide? And I go, the what? What are you, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, like when, when God ordered the you know, slaughter of all these people in, in the book of Joshua. And I go, I, I, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, I've read the Bible. I just don't remember uh, any of that. And, um, well, fast forward, I'm in classes reading those books by the New Atheists, finding out about all this. And even to this day, in a lot of colleges, whether it's in religion classes or sociology classes, philosophy 101, this is brought up as a gotcha against the God of the Bible to try putting him to the side so that people can live by the morality they want, while also not admitting that they are creating, that they have their own moral code and standards that they would agree with on. On, with God on. So, with that said, let's look at Genesis chapter 15. Uh, we're in verses 13 through 22, and if you're physically able, uh, please stand for reading God's word. And he said unto Abram, Know of surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall, they shall afflict them for four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come out hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the grace that you have given us through your son, Jesus. Lord, uh, help us to seek your face and to um, hear your word tonight. Lord, let it be, uh, uh, be with me as I, I preach it, God. And thank you for allowing us to be here and to experience uh, or getting to worship you um, with other believers. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. All right. So right here, right off the bat, Genesis chapter 15, we see that God makes a covenant with Abram about some land. But not just about some land, it's a spiritual covenant. It's a covenant that uh, Abram's family, he's, not only has he already told Abram that you're going to have, uh, back in chapter 12, he's told Abram that your descendants are going to be numerous, but now he's telling him your descendants, and even though at this point Abram uh, still doesn't have a son, but it's like your descendants are going to have this land, and it's going to be theirs. But they're not going to be here until after they've been in a foreign land for 400 years, and then they'll come back. They were really there for about 430 years. Then they'll come back and take that land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And we see a list of all the people who live there. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephims, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right. So what does all this mean? What's going on here? Well, I think we need to ask the first question. Who were the Canaanites? Who were the Canaanites? So if we go back to Genesis chapter 10, we'll find out who Canaan was. We'll find out who Canaan was. But before that, let's go back to, before we'll, we'll look at 10 and then we'll go back to 9. Because 9 is the narrative, 10 is explaining the uh, genealogies. 
So in chapter 10 of uh, Genesis, you'll see in verse 6, it says, The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. All right. So he had, four, he had three older brothers. Uh, the word Canaan means bowed down. So like all these nations in the ancient Near East, they all are usually named after their founder or the original patriarch of their tribe. So in this case, we have the Canaanites. You know, in the case of Esau, his descendants were the Edomites. You have um, uh, the Ishmaelites. You have a lot of people who are named after their, their father's tribe. So Canaan. All right. So why is he bowed down? What's going on with this? Well, we see in, um, in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 18, we see that he has a lot of peoples who are born out of him, a lot of children. It says he begot uh, Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, who becomes the Hittites, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite, and afterwards where the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And they lived from Sidon to Gerar to Gaza, down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and even to Lasha or to Sinai. So the Canaanites basically lived in what we call modern-day Israel, all the way down the Sinai, up to the Euphrates, over to where the wilderness starts on the uh, past the mountains on the east of the Jordan. So they lived in that area. And at this time, you have to remember, it says they lived in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, which, of course, Genesis 10, Sodom and Gomorrah hasn't been destroyed yet. It's a nice, luscious valley. Has not been destroyed by God yet. All right. So why is Canaan like, so all we know so far, if we just look at Genesis 10, is this who Canaan is. But let's go back to chapter 9. Just turn back a little to chapter 9. Look with me at verse 24. So what happened is Noah had accidentally had too much wine. Well, it doesn't say he accidentally, but Noah had too much wine. That's all we need to know. He had too much wine, he was drunk, and in his drunkenness, he kicked off his blanket and he exposed himself. So, what happens? Ham walks in, his son sees him like that, and instead of covering him, he comes out and starts making a joke about it with his brothers. And Noah, so his brothers go back in backward and they cover him up so they don't see him. Noah wakes up and he finds out what Ham had done, and it's interesting. Look at 25, he says, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. All right. So Noah curses Canaan. It says Canaan is going to be the servant of Shem's sons, or of Shem's family, and of Japheth's family. Now you may notice. How come he didn't curse Ham? Well, in Numbers, we see in Numbers twenty two twelve, Balaam mentions that you can't, or well, God mentions Balaam, you can't curse what God has blessed. Because remember, uh, Balak hires Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And every time he goes to curse, God speaks blessings through him. It's actually a pretty funny story because like the second time, he's like, twice now you've spoken blessings instead of curses. Like this time, you know, <laughs> speak a curse. And it's like, once again, a blessing. Um, but you can't bless what God's curse, or you can't curse what God's blessed. God blessed Ham as one of the, the, those who, has been spa- who was spared in the flood. So instead of cursing him, he curses Canaan. Well, why Canaan? Why not? You might think, why not his brothers? Why not his oldest brother? Why would you curse the youngest? 
probably because Noah saw in Canaan the same kind of attitude and behavior as he saw in Ham. You know, just a tendency towards perversion, unrighteousness. So he curses Canaan. Now, who were the, what, what did the Canaanites do? What are they known for? All right. So the Canaanites worshipped a god they named El. And, of course, you're thinking, yeah, well, El is in Elohim, right? No, it's their demonic, diabolic, twisted version of Elohim. So they had, of course, the same language as Abram and his family, and then as, uh, you know, because they all come from the same lineage here, uh, or lineages, but they worshipped a false version of God. They had El, who was in the, whenever you see him pictured, it's as a bull. You may think, well, that's interesting, because isn't a bull what Aaron did, used in, uh, when he makes the golden calf? And, and yes, exactly. He shapes the golden, he shapes El into a golden calf, just like the peoples would have done. Um, which is why it's so sinful, and that's why God made them drink the gold. Um, all right, so they, they worshipped El. Now, they didn't just worship El. You know, all the, you know a lot of these other names. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Asherah. They worshipped, because um, Baal was the son of El in their mind. They worshipped Baal, Asherah, Anath, Moloch. They worshipped Dagon. When, like from the, they took him from the Philistines and worshipped him. They worshipped all sorts of these false gods. And these gods were awful. They were, um, they make, when you read, if you read through like the, as they keep finding more and more Ugartic texts, which is the ancient language, as they keep finding more and more Ugartic texts, they're all rated R about these gods of the Canaanites. It's disgusting. It's vile. It makes anything about the Roman and Greek gods look mild. Uh, it's incredible. It's, it's incredibly just disgusting. Um, for the sake of the kids, I won't mention any of it, but it's disgusting. Um, what's going on with their gods? And later, you have the Phoenicians and the Sea Peoples. If you study history, they settle Carthage, the Carthaginians, who the Romans fought in the Punic Wars. They were also, they came from, Car- from Canaan, and they sailed and settled Carthage. Um, so they were absolutely horrible. Among them, and among their sins, when, well, and actually we'll look at Leviticus 18 in here in a minute, uh, among their sins, they, they were bestiality, incest, child sacrifice, rape, and murder. And we see that happening with, and uh, just to, to give you a couple examples, if you look at Genesis chapter uh, 18 and 19, we see what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Genesis chapter 34, we see what happens regarding Dinah, Jacob's daughter. Let's look real quick at that in chapter, Genesis chapter 18. Go to Genesis chapter 18. Let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah for a minute here. Just for a minute here. So, we have um, the Lord appears, the angel of the Lord, and he uh, he and Abram he and Abram Abraham talk, and um, let's move on here to okay, verse sixteen. When we move to verse sixteen, and it says, you know, so the the angel of the Lord and the his men they uh, they they rise up, and they look towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is grievous, 
I will go down now, and I will see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. The men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Now, of course, at this point, if you remember a lot, Abraham's nephew and his family live in Sodom. So Abraham comes over. Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be a fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do in this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's very important. And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, I will spare them. I will spare the place, all the place, for their sakes. And Abraham answered, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto thee, O Lord, which I am, I am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. And of course it keeps going on and on. And we see here in verse uh, 33 or 32, he says, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communion with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. And then we see in chapter 19, the two angels show up to rescue Lot's family from the city. Now you notice there, we, we, we're looking at this idea of like, the Can, like this Canaanite genocide, right? Uh, quote, unquote. And as if, as if God wiped out innocent people, as if it was just an ethnic cleansing, which it wasn't. As if God was wiping out innocent people, which he wasn't. Look back here at... Uh, verse when, when we look at verse uh, 25 there in chapter 18, look what Abraham says. He says, uh, be, it would be far for you to do this in this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous within the city, I will spare all the places for their sake. All right. So if there was 50 righteous people in the city, God said, yeah, I was gonna, I'll spare it. I'll spare the city for their sake. And he gets all the way down to 10, and of course there's not 10 righteous people in the city, so he's going to destroy it. Um, and what's, what's happening there is he says, well, should the, um, when, when Abraham says, um, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The judge of all the earth does right. And, he, and, he is, and, and that's why the angel says, I will do right. We're not going to destroy the city if there's righteous people there. We'll, we'll spare the righteous people for their, we'll spare the city for the righteous people's sake. But there are no righteous people there, just Lot and his family. And his family, really, he's only spared because of God's promise to Abram. And we see later in Peter that Lot is declared as righteous. But Lot's life does not show righteousness. He offers his daughters up to the men. It doesn't happen. The angels stop the men. But um, he offers up his daughters. He later um, um, has children through them. It's just it's so. But Lot is declared righteous by God and, and through Peter and Second Peter. So God spares the righteous in that sake. God will not just wipe out these innocent people. If there's people to be found righteous in that city, he will spare them. Okay, so we'll get to that more in a minute. Let's talk about God's covenant. To explain, to understand a little bit more about what's going on with the Canaanites, we have to get some more background. Let's talk about God's covenant. So God's covenant with Abram is all over the, the Pentateuch, starting in the book of Genesis, like through the you know, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Uh, it's all over, constantly. You know, I will make you a great nation, you inhabit this land. I'll make you a great nation, you're going to inhabit this land. We see it, obviously, in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 12, 
with um, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, or, uh, yeah, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And, thee, and in thee all families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance they had gathered, and all the souls they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. So that's the, obviously the start of the covenant with Abram. Uh, you're going to this land, all the nations are going to be blessed through you, you're going to have descendants, they're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, all the nations will be blessed through you. And you will have this land, this land that you're going to bury your wife in, that you're going to be buried in, this will be your descendants' land. All right, and then for, you know, they're going to dwell for 400 years in another land, and then they're going to get this land. So God's covenant is all across the New Testament, or the Old Testament, God's covenant with Abram. And God will keep that promise. We see in uh, Genesis 26, 2 through 5, we see that he reveals that same covenant to Isaac. And then later in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, he reveals that covenant to, um, to Jacob. And then he reiterates that covenant with Jacob in Genesis chapter 35. What's interesting about this is we think now, how does that relate to the Canaanites? What do the Canaanites have to do with it? So let's think about how long, depending on the timescales you go on, right? Depending on like when the flood happened to when, uh, after the Exodus, um, in the 1400s, after the Exodus, when they finally get to go into the land, you're talking up to a thousand years, maybe even more, that the Canaanites had to live there, to dwell there, and to turn to the Lord, they had Abram living among them, and then later they had Isaac living among them, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's family leaves. And then there's that, that's when the 430 years starts that, Jake, that the Israelites are in uh, Egypt. They had hundreds of years to turn to the Lord, but instead they continue to sin, as we see God knows they will when, it says, when he says the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, why? What's, what's going on there? Why are they in the land building it up? Well, God promises them a land flowing with milk and honey. So a land that's already been cultivated is what he's getting at. A land, like if the milk and honey are flowing, then that means the cows have a place to live. The pastures have already been laid. The, there's going to be homes that they didn't build. There's going to be walls they didn't put up. Basically, the Canaanites are going to be doing what, he, what um, Noah curse them to be doing, which is serving Shem and Japheth. Of course, Abram comes from the line of Shem, so we have the Canaanites basically serving them, building them a place to live, creating a place for them to live in Israel for when they move there. In fact, when you look through the book of, um, when you look through um, in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God even mentions that he's not going, he's going to cause them to, to flee. He's going to, he's going to push the people out ahead of the Israelites, but he's not going to do it all in one year, he says, because he basically, he doesn't want the land to go to desolation. It's going to be little after little by little as you keep pushing them out. That way, you know, you don't kick them all out at once and you don't inhabit it quick enough. Now you got overgrown, you know, like you, you guys know what happens if you don't, if you, if you don't keep up with like a tree line, 
by the next year, there's, if you don't keep it with a tree line for a year, then the year after that, it's going to be all thorns, thistles, locust trees, and it's going to take forever to get it all trimmed back up. Same way, like, you know, he's not going to kick them all out so quick that they won't be able to take care of the land. Okay, so that's another, so that's another background here. Final background. Let's go, we're going to talk about the harem, the ban. Okay, so turn with me to, there's going to be two different places we're really going to look at with this. Uh, Leviticus 27 and then Deuteronomy 20. So look with me at Leviticus chapter 27, verses 28 and 29. 28, 29. Okay. So here we go. Notwithstanding, no devoted thing that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath, both of man and beast and of the field and of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. None devoted shall be devoted, which shall be devoted of men shall be redeemed but shall surely be put to death. It's interesting language. When we see that, that word devoted or devoted to the Lord, we think, okay, well, it's, usually we see that in positive terms, right? In this case, it's in the negative terms. It's things that have been devoted to God for destruction, things that are declared evil, whether it's people who have committed the sins that are worthy of being stoned to death, whether it's things that are an abomination to the Lord and need to be destroyed, like idols and um, idols and the high places and pillars. So these are things that if, if they've been devoted to the Lord, they're not to be spared. They're to be destroyed. And then when we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 20 that God is giving Israel basically uh, how, to do, how to fight wars, giving them warfare plans, uh, including offering you know, uh, peace with a city that if they surrender and serve, then you know, they'll spare them. But... We see that there's there's a there's a um, there's a big caveat in verse sixteen through twenty or through eighteen. It says, "But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord God hath commanded thee." That they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So ye, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. So to spare them from sinning, he tells them to wipe out these people. And to spare them from becoming an abomination like them. They're ir, like what he's saying is they're like, as, a, as a people, as a culture, they're irredeemable. They're, they're, it's completely sinful. It's like the pre-flood world. And when we... Um, Look at, uh, if you, in, even in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he, he gets at this earlier. He says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into a land, whether, whither thou go to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, greater, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. When the Lord shall deliver them before thee, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them, neither shall thou make marriages with them, that thy, son, thy daughter shall not take, give unto his son, nor his daughter shall take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people 
unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you are more in number than any people, for you are the fewest. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman, from the hand of the Pharaoh. Know therefore the Lord thy God, he is the God, there he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments for a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. All right. So God is very serious about righteousness, we see here, and holiness, and seeking him, and serving him. And to those who have been against him, he's going to repay it to their face. Uh, and this is, a, this is uh, not just in the story of the Canaanites, but in just in life in general. Whenever we see people who are just wicked, sinful, whenever we see sin, like it feels like sin winning and horrible things happening and, and justice not being done, we can know that ultimately justice, you know, so, though someone may go to the grave on earth never receiving justice that, they that we think they should have received because they were, you know, they, maybe they got away with murder. Maybe they got away with adultery. They got away with all these things. We know that God will repay God, like, they, God, vengeance will be the Lord's. They will suffer for what they did. And it's also, it should be scary for us if we don't trust in the Lord. Because we know that that's us. Like, God will, like, justice will be done. Wrongs will be righted. And that's a call to repentance, to turn to the Lord while we still can. So why the ban on Canaan? Real, real fast. Like, if we look at Leviticus 18. Um, not going to read everything there. You know, this, you, you probably know this chapter. A lot of times we go there for our proof texts against homosexuality and some other sins. Um, but what you, what you might gloss over when you do that is what it says at the very beginning of chapter 18. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein you dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, where I bring you, shall you not do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. None of you, and then from there he starts going into a list, and this list in chapter 18 is basically the sins that they do in the land of Canaan, the horrible sins that they're doing in the land of Canaan. So why the ban? Why the wiping out? It's because... You go through this laundry list of horrific sins, um, and including um, offering up their children to Molech, passing them through the fire. That means offering them to this, uh, the god Molech, put in burning their children at the altar. Um, you see homosexuality. You see bestiality. You see all sorts of horrible things here. And it says, because it says uh, in verse twenty-four, defile, um, defile not yourselves with any of these things. For in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. The land is defiled. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereon upon it. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. All right. So the land, like because of the sins of these nations, the Canaanites, the land is defiled. The land itself is defiled and wants to spit them out. Think about that imagery. It's like when you, you know your, your body's gag reflex. You know that when you have something you're not supposed to, your body, all right, it's coming back. So 
uh, and that's what the land's doing. The land wants to spit them out. So why was God right to have Israel go execute judgment? We see that the Canaanites were wicked and awful. The Midianites in numbers were also wicked. The ones that, well, he, he says to wipe out, and it's not necessarily the whole Midianites in that point, but just this, certain, this tribe who led the people to sin against him at Baal Peor, if you read about it in Numbers 21 through 25. Um, you can read in that section. Um, there was a, that, that sin. And then we see the Amalekites uh, in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, Saul was supposed to completely wipe them out, which he doesn't. He doesn't even kill King Agag. Samuel has to. And because he doesn't wipe out the Amalekites, some bad things happen. Which, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll get to that in a second. So, here's, some, here's four quick reasons why God was right. Number one, God was using Israel as his weapon to judge the Canaanites for their sins against him. All right, so what did God do to Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the other three cities there? He destroyed them with fire from the sky, just blew them up, uh, destroyed that earth that can't be lived in. Um, but in this case, to, to, to judge the people, he was going to use Israel and their swords. It was, that was how he was going to do it. And we see, why, why is he doing this? Well, number one, the, the Canaanites, we see they were sacrificing children. They were defiling one another. And they're worshiping false gods. Not only that, but they're worshiping false gods that they're naming, that especially their chief god that they've named after the one living God. And we see that um, God is so serious about this because these people have no moral compass. They were so, they're evil and their, their evil and what they did was even abhorrent and disgusting to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. When the Romans went to Carthage to take it over, and they saw like the temples to, to Molech, they were so disgusted, they completely destroyed them and then salted the earth that the temples were on so they couldn't be used again. They were, and, that, and that's the Romans, and we know how bad they were. And we think about how bad the Assyrians and the Babylonians were. They came to Canaan, and they went, whoa, this is awful. So God, when Israel didn't finish the job, God used these nations to wipe them out. Assyrians with, north, with the northern kingdom, Babylon with the southern kingdom, and, the, uh, and then we see um, the Persians. Well, why I say the Persians? Well, Xerxes kills Haman. He was an Agite, so an Agagite. So literally he was part of the Amaleks, King Ag- Agag, and uh, there he is trying to kill off the Jews once again. And, and so God finishes him off through the Persians. And the big thing I want to point out there is they could have repented. They had all the time in the world to repent, and we'll get to a major story with that here in a minute. Secondly, God wanted to prevent the Israelites from becoming idolaters like Canaan and sinning like them. Dozens upon dozens, maybe even a hundred times in the Pentateuch, when you read through Exodus, through uh, especially through Exodus, from Exodus through the end of Deuteronomy, you will see like almost a hundred times God saying, do not make idols. Or destroy the high places, destroy the altars, destroy the pillars, destroy the idols. No idol worship. And sure enough, they don't destroy the idols and they start worshiping the idols. And the failure, failure to remove them leads to the sins we see at the end of Judges 1 going into Judges 2 where now the Israelites are worshiping Baal. Thirdly, it was to prevent issues in the future. God knew that if the Amalekites were not wiped out by Saul, for instance, he would, they would cause future problems like kidnapping David's family or um, Haman seeking to destroy the Jews and Esther. So God knows the future. He knows uh, what will happen. He knows that the, pro- like the problems that will happen if these people are left. 
And finally, it was to fulfill the curse on Canaan and the covenant that he also made with Israel. So, one thing to point out there, no one is innocent in the sense of being sinless. We see that in Psalm 51. We see that in Psalm 58. No one is innocent. And you think, well, why the women and the children? Well, the women were actively participants in the degrading sins of Canaan, and their children would have grown up sympathetic to the evil religions and the practices of their parents. The children were being raised up in it. They, they believed the same things. They would have thought the same things. They were corrupted. And we see in um, the case of Midian, the Israelites spare the women who hadn't had, who, um, they spare the women who actually led the uh, men astray to go worship Baal. And Moses has to come in and say to the, Le- the Levitical priests, we need to kill all these women who are not virgins because they're the ones who, who were evil in the first place. And we see that eventually the, the children and the women would have been resentful of the Israelites. So imagine this, you, you know, the Israelites come in, they wipe out all the men to, to conquer the kingdom, and then they leave. Well, as those children grow up, they're going to grow up resentful of the uh, Israelites and what they did. We see this even in the middle, like, we, if you think back to, like, some of the, war, the wars that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan, as kids were growing up after their parents got killed in the war and the wars with, with the coalitions that we had over there, their kids would grow up resenting America, resenting the Western Europeans, and then they would go fight. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah, you basically you're nipping that evil in the bud. So you may think too, like, okay, so Trent, did you really answer the question? Why, how is it not genocide? Well, it's, it was God's righteous judgment then instead of later. Instead of judging them later in hell, instead of judging them in judgment day, it was God's judgment then through the Israelites. And God is righteous. He can do what he wants. Um, He can do what he wants, and we know that he'll do what is right. He always does what is right. Uh, We've answered the questions. Throughout this series on apologetics, we've answered the questions of morality and proving that morality exists. So we know that even the atheists who who come out here and say that God is evil— well, how do they say that God is evil from their worldview? How do you say God is evil from a worldview like Sam Harris's, who argues that humans and our feelings and our thoughts are nothing more than neurons firing in a machine? Basically, like the idea of neurons in your brain and you know the synapses firing and all those electronics going on up there. Um, to Sam Harris, uh, he's a neuroscientist atheist who was part of that four horsemen of the new atheist group. He believed that we're basically just machines, and, the, and, and whenever we're thinking of things, our brain is firing, and whenever we start creating a religion in his mind, our brains are misfiring. He, for some reason, thinks that over 90% of the world has misfiring brains, so just take that for what it's worth. But how, how, how do you decide that's wrong from an atheist worldview? How do you decide that people believing in a religion is wrong or that what God did is wrong? Like, where does your compass start? How do you start? Where did you believe in right and wrong from the first place? Where do you get that from in an atheist worldview? In a natural selection worldview, isn't the strongest who's supposed to survive? So whatever the strongest says is right, they win. But that doesn't fit in the view of, well, this guy can't do that. That means now you've realized, okay, you're, you're starting to do a, do a right and wrong thing. What it really comes down to is none of those guys had truly studied the word of God. They didn't understand because they're opposed to God, because they're suppressing the truth of God for a lie. They don't want the God of the Bible to exist because that means they will be judged for their sins. That's what it ultimately comes down to. 
ultimately this idea like throwing out the, the the phrase genocide and i say anachronism because you know it didn't exist you're attaching it uh as if as if the other cultures of the ancient world weren't doing worse when they conquered each other because they were the israelites um they weren't to torture they were not to rape they were not to um in a lot of cases if they were to wipe out a city they would destroy all the goods there too they weren't supposed to take them totally different than the way the ancient culture worked there was actually a moral code by which they were living so all i have to say how, how do we like this is a pretty you know this is a pretty crazy topic i know for me studying this i'm going through reading about the sins of canaan reading about their false gods it's very dark all of it's very dark and they think too like you know there's these people dying like where do we find hope in all of this where do we find hope well i think we find hope here in christ and in god's long suffering with sinners and you know how long like you you hear stories of when people become christians way late in life or in fact, anytime you become a Christian, God was patient with you, and you sinned. Before you became a Christian, you were sinning and not seeking the Lord, and you were against him, and God was patient. We see God was long-suffering. I mentioned Lot. He was declared righteous by Peter and Second Peter. Yet we see that he was so ingrained in the culture of Sodom, he was willing to give up his daughters uh, to evil men to spare some strangers that he didn't know. And of course, that didn't happen, but uh, or it didn't end up happening. But he had to end up being physically dragged out of Sodom. Remember, he didn't want to leave. So the angels grabbed him and his, him and his daughters and, and his wife and yanked them out of the city. And then we see later he, got him, he, was, he allowed himself to get drunk and have kids via his two daughters. But God was still merciful to him. And although God said that the Moabites and the Ammonites were not supposed to be part of his people, he told Israel to spare them for the sake of Lot when they went into Israel. We see that Jacob was a liar. He was a thief. He was um he was not a good guy. He even let his wife uh have his like when they st- they stole Laban's household idols and they still had them. He let his wife have them. And even when God redoes the covenant with him in chapter thirty five of Genesis, it he doesn't destroy the idols that all of his people have. He just buries them under a tree. Like hi, it doesn't even say buries. It says hides them under a tree. Probably to go back and get them later. We don't know. But. Jacob wasn't a great guy, but he, but he ends up coming to the Lord, and he's declared righteous by God. But more to the focus of our topic, what about Rahab? The Israelites are told to completely destroy the city of Jericho. Wipe it out. Destroy it. Leave nothing left. The walls are going to come down. Don't, even take, don't take any loot. Don't take any animals. Everything stays there, and it's all going to be destroyed, the people and everything. But God spares Rahab and his family. Or Rahab and her family, um, because they spare that she spares the the um, she spares the spies. Well, let's look back at what she says in Joshua chapter two, and this is another example of how the people of the people of Canaan had time to repent. We see it in Numbers as well, um, when Balak's worried about the Israelites across the river. He knows who they are. He knows what happened in Egypt, and rather than repenting and believing the Lord, he just wants to get rid of them. We see in, um, let's see here, um, chapter 2, verse 9 of Joshua. She said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that, you, that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, who you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts 
did melt, neither did they remain in any more courage in man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me uh, by the Lord, I have showed you kindness, that you also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. Um, so Rahab says, hey, we know that we know what's going on here. And you think it's been 40 years since the Red Sea parted. And here it is 40 years later. It's like, listen, we know that the Red Sea dried for you people and that what your God has done and that your God is actually the true God in heaven above. So, okay, if, if Rahab knows that, then all the Canaanites could have known that. Rahab, the prostitute, not, you know, Rahab, the king, Rahab, you know, Rahab, the queen. It's Rahab, the prostitute. It's, and if she knows it, then everyone should have known it and had a chance to repent and believe. So we look at Hebrews. If we go to, I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, and that's where we're going to close is Hebrews 11 and then 12. So when we talk about God's long-suffering, God spares Rahab and her family, and of course, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. So God spares Rahab and her family. We see here in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, 31, it says, this is the famous Hall of Faith passage. We see, by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believeth not when she had received the spies with peace. All right, so she didn't perish. What was her faith? Because, you know, of course, Hebrew, in Hebrews 11, it always says by faith, by faith, by faith. What was her faith in? It close looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which do, doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So what was her faith? By faith she was looking ahead to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The same Jesus, the same looking ahead that all of those Canaanites could have done. They could have repented. They had so much time, a thousand and a hundred years. And when the time of judgment came, many of them did not believe. And in fact, we say the genocide of the Canaanites, really, other than a, a few cities, the Israelites actually failed miserably in that task. They didn't even wipe out the Canaanite people, if we want to point that out in the argument. And God still, um, he was still saving them. He was still saving them. Many Canaanites, many Canaanites, including Rahab's family, are going to be at the great throne judge, or at the uh, great throne uh, worshiping before the Lord in heaven because of this great, this great joy, or the great faith that comes through Christ. And it says, and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that, endures, that endured such contradiction of sinners against him, lest ye yourself be wearied and faint in your minds. So tonight, when we think about this, this, the Canaanite issue and how we would talk about that with our, with our friends or strangers who don't know Christ and think that that's an issue, uh, let us remember that ultimately what we're trying to point all these people to it's we're not battling with people who are neutral in their minds. We're battling with people who are against the Lord um, in their sin. And we need to, like, ultimately what we need to do is not win an argument, but win them to Jesus and share the gospel with them and share with them this faith um, that will save them. This faith that, like, faith in Jesus and what he did, that he, that he lived the life they couldn't live, that he died the death they deserved to die, and that he rose again so that they could be free if they would trust in him. And with, if you haven't believed that tonight, I pray that you would and that you would talk to myself or Pastor Tim about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the grace you've shown us through Jesus. Thank you that you, you uh, did not punish us and, and eliminate us and destroy us and judge us the first time we sinned, Lord, or when we were born with our wicked hearts, God. But instead, you showed us grace and allowed us uh, to hear the gospel 
wherever we were, to hear the gospel, to believe in you. Uh, you opened our hearts, you turned our hearts to you so that we could be saved and, and serve you forever. God, I pray that you would um, turn our nation uh, back to you, that we would run away from all these things as we're starting to go down these roads of abominations that we see the, the land of Canaan was doing. God, I, hope, I pray you would turn our nation back, that we would return from those things, that we would repent from those things, and that we would seek you, Lord, as a nation. Uh, and in our own communities, Lord, help us to make your name known so that whether the nation rises or falls, our communities would be seeking you. 